Hey, would you please uh, stay standing for me, please? Amazing. Thank you so much. Stand to your feet if you've already been seated. We are going to have our scripture reading, and we always stand in reverence to the Word of God. Um, so let's begin. Now, today's scripture reading is from Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we pro profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Have a seat. Father, we just want to say thank you so much for the ancient way. Thank you that there is truth that we can hold on to from the scriptures. And we just pray that you would unfold it for us right now. We have an eager expectation for you to be at work in this gathering. And we came here today for lots of reasons. One of the main ones being that we are following in your path and you taught us to gather together. But we also came here, some of us very desperate for you to move in power and for you to heal and restore. And I just want to pray for those in the room who need your restoration, your healing today. We just ask that this, this, uh, this time that we spend together, these few moments we have in your word would do just that. And I also just pray for the faith in the room today of my brothers and sisters. I pray that it would collectively rise um, and that we would walk out of here just more assured and more confident of your glory and what you have in mind for us as your people. So God, would you come in great power? We love you, Jesus. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Okay. So um, you guys, we are about halfway through this mid uh, this, this fall series that's called Lord Teach Us to Pray. And the whole concept behind this series is that you and I would develop a daily prayer rhythm where we pray multiple times a day, um, but we are doing more than just kind of lobbing our requests up to God like a cosmic grocery list. But what we actually are interested in is actually talking with, connecting with, and in the words of the Bible, communing with the living God. And my hope and eager expectation is that we would be the kinds of people who seek after a desire and actually long for the presence of God. We have a hunger crisis in our country and many, many senses of that word. But one of the things that has broken my heart over the years is that the Western church seems perfectly content to not experience God in his presence. And there comes with that a spiritual anemia, a spiritual apathy, and even a spiritual impotence in the church because we do not have the hunger and the desire for God that we ought to. And so this whole series of prayer is kind of geared towards that. And I have to tell you, oh, uh, I've been seeing you, those of you who've been here week in, week out. I've been seeing things happening inside of you through the conversations that we have and through just watching your eyes light up with a new 
resonance and excitement for the presence of God. And we're just only barely getting started. And just this week, I was uh, away at a little conference with the staff team um, at um, a 24-7 prayer conference. It's a national gathering. And I have to say that here in our little enclave in Bend, we've got lots of great friends in other churches and everything else, but we often feel like, like uh, a little bit... Um, like a crazy person when we talk about prayer the way that we talk about prayer because we're um, very, uh, as you know, devoted to this idea that the possibility and the potential of the kingdom of God is right here, right now. And we're going after it pretty hard and you often see me getting enthusiastic up here and that's because I am in genuinely enthusiastic about you encountering God in prayer. Uh, but again, sometimes I can feel a little bit like a crazy person because I feel like we're looking at something and we see something um, that others maybe don't see or haven't seen yet. Uh, but at this national prayer conference with the team, it was like a coming home for me because there is this collective from around the country of just ordinary radicals who believe like we believe and who are seeking after God with the same sense of hunger and passion that we are. And it felt like our hearts just were united with our family, like the people that we have been longing for. And it was just incredible to see. I, in my life um, in ministry, I've seen a lot of enthusiasm around the gospel. I've seen a lot of enthusiasm for worship. I have not seen an enthusiasm for prayer. And I'm seeing that amongst this group, the 24-7 prayer movement. And it's kind of our people. And when we come together and we praise the Lord, we pray and seek his face, there's something pretty awesome and pretty remarkable that's happening. And so I feel like what we're experiencing today in Riverbend is just a, an awakening where we're starting to kind of have our eyes open a little bit to the reality of the bigness of God all around us. Are you guys excited about that? Okay, sweet, awesome. I'm glad you are, because I am, for sure. Um, so last week, we introduced you to the prophet Elijah, and some of you already know who he is. He's this really good dude, a prophet guy from the Old Testament, and he had just come off of a huge victory, a really high point in his life where his prophecies were coming true, and he was calling down miracles, and there was like a major revival that was happening in the northern kingdom of Israel. But he also had a big problem. The problem was that the king and the queen at the time wanted him to die. They, they wanted him dead. And so they ran away into the wilderness and um, his body was tired and his spirit was exhausted and he basically just fell apart. That was the story that we read last week. He shouted something like, kill me now, God. I don't want any more of this. And then he fell asleep under a tree. So he's in a bad spot. Elijah's in a bad spot at the time. And uh, you might relate to Elijah. I know at certain times of my life, I certainly have. Life in the modern West is very complicated and in some cases, very, very dark as well. And I know enough of the stories in the room to know that there is a lot of darkness in our world and some of that has influence and has affected you. So here's what I love about waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord is this spirit-filled and grace-filled practice for us to actually not just cope, but really, truly deal with our unhealth. See, Jesus knows that our tendency is to avoid emotional pain or to cope with our emotional pain in a variety of different ways. We talked about this last week. If you were not here, please go back and listen to the podcast because I can't possibly recap it all here. But in the quiet place, Jesus shows us another way not to artificially 
cope or distract ourselves from our emotional pain, but to actually deal with it. So you don't have to reach for your iPhone every eight minutes, or you don't have to uh, fall into the escapist behavior of just binging Netflix or Hulu or whatever. You don't have to just like chase a relational high by going from a different brew pub every night or to bury yourself in work if you're type A. You can withdraw to be with God in the quiet. You can. This is in fact one of the highlights and high points of my entire life. Um, I was reminded this week of my first year out of high school, I went to this little gap year Bible college program on the island of Maui. And I had zero money, no Wi-Fi, no TV. I could barely feed myself. But it was awesome. And every night, I would walk down and watch the sunset go down um, on, the, on the beaches of West Maui. And I spent time in God's presence. And that's where I fell in love with the presence of God. And that's my hope for you as well. You can withdraw into the quiet with God, and you're safe with him. You don't have to suppress your emotions anymore when you're with him. He goes to work deep in your life. And over time, not right away, it's not like a magic wand or the flip of a switch, but over time, you are healed. You are made whole, and you're fundamentally reshaped from the inside out. And I believe that now more than I ever have. Even with everything that I've seen over the last couple of years, even with just kind of quite frankly the, um, <laughs> just the onslaught of, of horrible stories that we hear in society and in our own lives, I am more convinced of God's healing power than ever before. You might remember last week we talked about an eight-stage pattern of silence and solitude. This is an idea that we borrowed from uh, the great writer Ruth Haley Barton, and she wrote a book called The Invitation to Silence and Solitude, and it's phenomenal. And in it, she describes this eight-stage process or pattern for silence and solitude, and it goes like this, withdraw, rest, wait, feel, name, hear, be transformed, and then re-enter. And we covered the first four last week. We're going to cover a couple today and a few next week. So the first thing that we do is withdraw. The frenetic pace of life in the modern West and all of our tech addictions and a whole myriad of other things are there conspiring against your time alone in the quiet with God. I need you to see it in this way because the reality is that the things that are coming at you all of the time are so noisy and they create um, a space, uh, a headspace where we can't actually connect with God in prayer. So what we need to do is to intentionally set aside all distraction. And some of you, maybe all that you need to do is add a few minutes to your day where you wake up a few minutes earlier to be alone with God. Others of you need to leave your phone inside and go for a long prayer walk. And others of you have never detoxed from tech since you were a small person. And you need to actually do a detox. It's very much like an addiction to other things like sex and alcohol and drugs and everything else. We need to detox from our tech. And so that might mean you going on a couple day backpacking trip or something like that um, where you don't have any 5G and you just put your phone away. I know it seems wild in our day and age to do that, but I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's incredible how long a 24-hour 24 24 period of time is when you're not 
digitally connected. The next step is to rest. There's a good tire that comes from a, like a job well done and a life full of great things. And then there's dangerous tired. And that's where Elijah was last week in our story. All he had the energy for, and maybe you can relate to this, is to feel sorry for himself. That's all he had energy for. And then he just crashed and fell asleep. Something like, kill me now, God. And then he was out like a light. And if that's you, uh, again, what you might need is just a significant shakeup in your daily normal rhythms for rest. And our culture does not see the value of or prioritize non-productive activities like waiting on the Lord. Because it feels very non-productive. But if we are following Jesus, then we need to pay attention to his voice. And if we're too tired or too fatigued to pay attention to God's voice, or too distracted, then we're way too distracted and too tired. And we need to schedule this into our life. The only way that you are actually going to experience the kind of transformation that we're talking about here as we discuss discipling after Jesus is if you plan it into your life, like you plan to go see your folks at Christmas and like you plan to meet all of your work goals and school goals and everything else, you need to plan this stuff into your life. It's not very sexy. Fidelity to Jesus isn't always sexy. Sometimes it's just the right thing to do and it results in over time, it results in an incredible um, relationship to God and great power from God. Every human being I respect that is... Um, beyond me in years and beyond me in maturity in Christ has a deep committed rhythm to daily time and weekly and monthly and annual rhythms in God's presence. Next we wait. We let go of our agendas. We let go of our timetables. We let go of our demands on God. Or in the words of Carlo Corretto, I don't decide when the sun comes up. God decides when the sun comes up. I don't decide when God speaks to me. He decides when he speaks to me. See, Elijah waited 40 days before he heard God's voice. The scripture gives us no reason as to why that is. We simply don't know. But what we do know is that waiting for God puts us back into the posture and the position where we actually belong. It's a posture of trust. Instead of trusting in our own pace, trusting in our own ability to get stuff done, or trusting in our ability to achieve or to be successful, all of that's to the side. And as we wait on the Lord, we are trusting in God himself. And we become indifferent to every outcome that's not his will. That's the, how the spiritual fathers defined maturity in Christ, was their indifference to things that are not God's will. Not my will, but yours be done, in the language of Jesus at uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. And then fourth and finally, we feel. After we rest and wait, the things that have now been below the surface of our consciousness, the things that we would never see until we stop and rest and wait, the things that are good, the things that are bad, the things that are really ugly. Those things in the quiet with God rise to the surface. Last week I told you a story about how seven years ago my wife and I lost our twin daughters, Hope and Brielle. And for a very considerable period of time I was doing everything that I could to serve my family and support my wife and my daughter at the time. But I suppressed my own feelings. I didn't know how to deal with them and I cheated myself on grief and suffering and it took me a really long time to wake up to that. Subconsciously, there was a reason for that. It's hard to deal with our emotional pain. It's hard to deal with our grief. 
And Ruth Haley Barton and Henry Nouwen and many of the spiritual writers believes that this subconsciousness, this subconscious avoidance of time alone in the, God, in, in the quiet with God is because of this exact thing. Emotional pain is hard to deal with. So when all of the activity stops and we see ourselves for who we are and all of the things that we've been going through, going through we, we want to just escape back to being alone, or excuse me, going back into being busy and all of that. But once I learned how to withdraw and how to rest, and this can be true of you too, I found myself in a completely new posture of simply trusting God with the pain in my story. And now I, I am able to be restored and I'm able to be made new by his spirit. It's not magic. It's not flip of a switch. None of that. But I am becoming whole through trusting in him over time. So we no longer have to suppress our emotional pain. We can actually allow God to, to heal as it comes up in the quiet place. So picking the story back up uh, where we left off, uh, Elijah is at Mount Sinai. Right? And this is the place of God's presence or the place of encounter with God, historically speaking, from the story of the scriptures. And this is what Yahweh finally says after 40 days of silence. What are you doing here, Elijah? Which, by the way, completely reminds me of what Jesus would often say to people who are coming to him for healing. He would say, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And this is the question I think at the center of this style of prayer, waiting on the Lord. And this is what Elijah says. He says, I've been super zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've put your prophets to death with the sword. And I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Okay, so here's kind of buried in these verses is the fifth pattern, or excuse me, the fifth stage in this pattern of waiting on the Lord. Elijah names what he's feeling. He names what he's feeling. He's still not in a good spot, but he's expressing himself to God, the real stuff. And that's what happens when you stop, wait, withdraw. Uh, you're able to then feel and then name what you're feeling. And so many times as I have been pastoring people through the emotional trauma in their life, I find that when we slow down just for a minute, we could actually begin to see these things rising up in us. Our human tendency is to push it to the side. But Elijah does what we are to do as well, which is to let it flow out of us instead, express what we're feeling. So when you're in an emotionally unhealthy place, like Elijah, like, like me at times, and I'm sure like many of you, what comes up when you allow yourself to feel, it usually falls under a, a couple of different categories. Here are the categories that I have seen anyways. Um, there are lies, there are fears, there are unbelief, there's unbelief that's usually connected to some form of anxiety. And then there's also unforgiveness. Guilt and anger and stuff like that is normally how those manifest. Again, this is just my opinion. I'm not a counselor, a mental health expert, or anything like that. But I have been listening to people's stories for years and years now, and I've been pastoring people through them, right? Lies, fears, unbelief, usually connected to anxiety, and unforgiveness uh, to myself or others. This is what people generally talk to me about. Now... Um, in Elijah's little outburst that we just read, there are, it, there are all four of these things come out in his prayer. Like, for example, what he actually says to God is not even true. He feels that it's true, but it's not even true. That's to the side of the point. He's just saying what he's feeling. 
And then he's also afraid for his life, so there's fear in there. He's got misplaced anger towards God. You can see his words have a particular kind of edge to them because he's actually uh, resisting God and blaming God for things that is not actually God's fault. And then he's certainly not in a trusting mood. He's really not in a trusting mood. In fact, it's quite the opposite. You can kind of see and feel um, all of Elijah's angst. And as a human in process, I can really relate to a lot of what he's saying. I'm a perfectionist, and um, I tend to be pretty idealistic. And that comes with a big downside that I like to call my inner critic. And I have this really sharp inner voice, and I'm prone to believe things like, I'm not good enough, or that I'm a failure. I've been wrestling with those two thoughts my entire life, for as long as I can possibly remember. And it's not that my parents withheld affection or anything like that. They're actually really great people. It's just like, this is what's going on inside of me. I have a negative script, runs through my mind. And unfortunately, from my conversations with many of you, I'm well aware that this is part of your narrative script as well. And sometimes we internalize and believe lies about ourselves. And when we do, it affects everything. It affects my emotional health. It affects my spiritual life. It affects my relationships with my wife and others. It affects how I do in my job, in my work, my self-conscious and completely like down in the dumps because of how I view myself that are not actually true. Again, in my exploration of this topic and in my experience as a pastor, I think this becomes particularly harmful when the lies that we believe are connected to our identity. Now, Um, If I lost you, please come back to me because this is super, super important. And for some of you, this might feel like old hat, but for a lot of us in the room, we're still kind of getting the hang of this. Um, What I mean is that we have essentially um, begun to believe these lies about our identity, about who we actually are, and then that begins to spread into every sphere of our life. So to give you an example, I need to tell you a story. But let me start this story by saying that in the conflict that I have with my wife in our marriage, it's like at least 80% my fault, okay? And I'm, I'm not saying that like with false modesty. It's just actually true. My wife's name is Grace, and she really lives up to that name. I know that sounds cliche, and it kind of is, but it's true. In her case, it's really, really true. So if there's an argument, excuse me, a, spirit, a spirited conversation, like then it's going to be most of the time it's on me. And uh, that said, when we were first married, Grace was holding on to this like negative identity label that she hadn't told me about. I didn't know it was there, and she was pretty unaware of it as well. But back in middle school, which is like 20 years ago, or maybe I should say, maybe I should, like, let's not talk about age. Let's just maybe just leave that out. Um, She's in middle school. Two people called her a pushover, which is kind of rude, like, right? Teenagers can say mean things like that, but that's what what they said, and it was totally untrue. But she believed it, And she internalized it, and then she kind of had it as a chip on her shoulder for all of these years. And I did not know that she was holding on to this, and she really wasn't aware of it either. But then one time, we were having our spirited conversation, and I was thinking to myself, well, why is Grace resisting all of my phenomenal ideas right now? Like, I'm giving her pure gold, and she's not having any of it. What's going on here? And that was sarcasm, by the way. I don't know if you picked up on that, but... 
you tend to have a positive image of the things that you come up with in your mind. It's not always the case. I always I say, I've got a lot of ideas. About 40 to 50% of the time, they're good, good ideas. The rest of the time, they're garbage. Anyways, in my mind, at the time, I was like, these ideas are phenomenal. And Grace wasn't having any of it. And uh, then she just said it. She said, well, my whole life, everyone has told me that I'm a pushover. And I was like, What? Like, when has that ever been the case in our dynamic? It never has felt like that. And plus, I'm a super easygoing and laid-back guy. I would never try and push anyone over, which is also sarcasm. But she, what she was actually doing is she was just trying to express herself to me that she had some good ideas, too, and that I needed to pay attention to them and to listen to her. And by the way, she was completely right about that. But what came out in that moment was a lie that she had believed about herself for decades and it was really affecting our communication. I'm a pushover. I can't be a pushover in this situation. This is actually not true about her at all, but it was really impacting and affecting our communication. That's just one small example of how these lies manifest and work in our lives. By the way, she's worked through that now. She's released that to God, which I'm gonna talk you through here in a minute. And now we've got a lot of issues, but they're all my issues. So we're working on those <laughs> slowly but surely. It's gonna be many more decades probably. Um, so are there any lies that you're believing about yourself? Lies that you've internalized subconsciously. Maybe you've had like a ver verbally abusive or passive aggressive family member who said awful things to you over the years about your int intellect or that you're worthless or that you're unlovable. I, I cannot tell you how many times I've sat with people in our church who know what the Bible has to say about God's love for everyone. And they believe intellectually that God would love them. But deep down, their sense is that they are worthless and not worthy of love. It's tragic. All the time I see this. And so maybe there's something like that that's going on. Or maybe, like me, you have a negative internal script. Or maybe you have a cultural script that's reinforced by like the gods of social media, which exist, in my view. You're not pretty enough. You're not successful enough. You're not powerful enough. You're not whatever enough, right? These things, these lies that are told to us, we internalize. This is, in my view, nothing short of the kingdom of darkness that is through the world, the flesh, and the devil trying to tear you down and keep you from experiencing freedom in Christ. Now, the, the, what we need to do with this, what do we do with this? These lies that we've believed about ourselves. Well, we can't think our way through them. Okay, you're smart, you're sophisticated people, all of that's true. But you cannot think your way out of a lie. And you cannot think your heart away from being bitter towards the things in your life that you can't control. The answer is to wait. To wait on the Lord. And when you wait on the Lord in the quiet, the lies, the fears, the unbelief, and the unforgiveness. They don't magically go away. In fact, for a moment, they get bigger and louder at first. And this is why most of us try and avoid it altogether. Henry Nouwen confessed in his journal, they jump around in my mind like monkeys in a banana tree. <laughs> so that's a good picture. That's what happens oftentimes when we go to the Lord in prayer. But it's God's mercy, actually, when those things are rising in your brain the way that I'm describing. Because when we feel and then name the lies, fears, unbelief, and unforgiveness in the solitary place, then Jesus is there to dismantle them, to remove them, and to replace them with the truth. So, the solitary place 
is where we exchange our anxiety, our anxious thoughts and our disappointments with God's peace. This is what happens. Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay. We exchange our anxious thoughts and our disappointments with God's peace in the solitary place. Thank you for the affirmation. (laughs) I'll take it. And I have tasted the peace of God. And I have lived this now. And I know deep within me from my personal experience the goodness of God. As I'm more certain of that than I am that I'm standing in front of you right now. I know, I know him. And I know some of you here, you do as well. And not just in the intellectual, academic sense, but in the sense that I'm referring to. Deep within you, you have encountered the goodness of God. And the English language does not do him justice. We could not possibly describe him in all of our books and podcasts. We can never describe the goodness of God. And all of the music and all of the art and all of the beauty in the world is just very barely beginning to encapsulate the glory of his goodness. And so even if your faith is on the floor right now, it doesn't even matter because I have faith for you and I know a few others in the room do as well. I have faith for you that the goodness of God is coming for you today. I believe that he is knocking on the door in the language of Revelation chapter 3. And he's not going to bust his way in. That's not how he works. But if you have the courage enough and the faith enough to just crack open the door for him, the scripture says that he will come in and he'll eat with you or make his home with you, make his abode with you, right? Which is visual language that's representing a concrete spiritual reality, that you have the presence of God. This is a good thing, and I want to show you Um, exactly what I mean by that. How you can exchange your anxious thoughts for God's peace. How you can exchange your anxious thoughts for God's peace. I want to show you that right now because you've heard me talk about this for a long time and you've heard me get all enthusiastic and said it's possible and you're like, okay, great. Some of you are like right there with me, full of faith and everything else and you're living it. Others of you though are not there yet and sometimes the crisis is like, how do we actually do it? And so I want to show you um, how we can actually do it. And I realize that, I realize what happens in settings like this. And what sometimes happens is, okay, we're talking about the Jesus stuff, and we internalize these things very passively, where you're like, okay, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm with you on that, I agree with that, I agree with that, I agree with that. Okay, great, are we done? You know, we kind of move on. And um, that's just kind of how our culture is set up and, and everything else. I, I don't, certainly don't take any offense to it. Um, but I have a longing in my heart that I cannot quiet. And that is that you would know the presence of God. And that you would experience him. And I don't get the chance to sit with each of you face-to-face every single week. If I could, I would. I can't. And you might not even be interested in that. I don't know. That's fine. But in the moments that we have here, will you please just be with me? And follow me for a few moments. Because I might just be unlocking future for you. Like, the way for you to experience real life. 
And that certainly doesn't come from me. But the scriptures have a ton to say about this. And now it's been decades and thousands of years, or excuse me, thousands of hours that I have spent doing exactly what I'm about to describe to you. And I trust, I believe that this is for you too. So I get it, I get it. I rant, I go for it or whatever, but please, please, please. Will you, will you join me in this, these next few moments? You with me? Okay, join me here. This is a rhythm of prayer that we sometimes call casting cares. And it's a form of prayer that's found all over the scripture. Cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That's 1 Peter 5, 7. Uh, Psalm 55, 22 says, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. Psalm 62, verse 8, trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. And then finally, Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, so those are just four of the many scriptures that I could share with you that go along these lines, and it's beautiful, right? And to, be, to believe these scriptures, we need to understand them, and in order to understand them, then we need to really think clearly about what they're actually saying. But hold up, because most of us, if not all of us, have done that over and again with scriptures and scriptures like these, and yet some of us are still no less anxious than we were when we began. Why is that the case? The reason why is because we need to put these things into practice. We need to put these things into practice. I met a woman a couple of weeks ago here at the church who uh, is a dietitian, And she could give me everything that I need to know in order to eat right for my age and for my blood type and for my exercise routine and just about everything else. But the only way that it actually does me any good is if I take her advice and I actually do what she's telling me to do. Right? You can know all of the right things to eat, but if you put other things in your body, it's not doing you any good. So knowing something is not the same thing as doing something. So for these scriptures to actually do something in your life, then we need to do um, what the ancients called imaginative prayer. Imaginative prayer, which I know to you might actually kind of sound strange and maybe a little bit mystical, but I promise it's very biblical and I'm gonna show you how it works. In fact, we're gonna have a little thought exercise to get us going on what imaginative prayer actually is. So uh, this is the thought experiment. I want you to imagine in your mind's eye everything that's in your fridge right now, okay? Everything that's in your refrigerator. I'm not gonna make you come up here and tell me how many growlers you have and how much beer you drink, but play along with the experiment, okay? What's in your fridge right now? Think of what's, what's in there, as many items as you can, right? Maybe there's some fruit and some vegetable. Maybe there's some leftover wild rose or whatever you went to for date night the other night. And uh, just, just take a minute to do that. And as you do, raise your hand if you think you can name at least 10 items that's in your fridge right now. Raise your hand if you think you can. Okay, sweet, awesome. What about 15? You think you can name 15 items in your fridge right now? Okay, a number of you probably can do that. Awesome. Okay, so the purpose of that exercise is to uncover how you recall information like those items in your fridge. It's automatic. You didn't even think about how you did it. And what you did was you used your imagination 
to access or to recall concrete information. So here's my guess. Here's what I mean. You either pictured in your mind's eye the last time that you loaded groceries into your fridge and you, like, in your mind's eye, so it's like, yeah, okay, yeah, the, the juice goes up here and then behind that is some pickles and over here is some of that or whatever. And you just kind of, you imagine it or whatever. Or if you didn't do that, then potentially what you did in your mind's eye, you kind of opened your fridge in your mind and you kind of looked at what was on each of the shelves and you begin imagining what's there. Again, the ketchup's over here, the... Jalapenos are over there, or there's cheese in that drawer, and then there's some vegetable over here, or whatever. Now, maybe you used a slightly different method than that to do what I just described, but the point is that you imagined the actual items, and you visualized them. What your mind did not do was to basically think of the words themselves, like it was a blank computer screen, and what popped up on the blank computer screen was the word ketchup. K-E-T-C-H-U-P, and then under that, the word juice, J-U-I-C-E. That's not how you're, you recall information. If that's how you recall information, you're a robot, we're scared for our lives, the rest of us, because you're probably not right in your head. You're a human, and when you're a human, you use your imagination in order to recall things that are concrete. And yet, for some reason, when we pray, we often go the computer screen ray where we block out our field of vision and we focus intensely on the words that we want to say to God. God, I need your help with my wife or with this pain, my anxiety, my job, my fiance or whatever. And if that's what you're going through, then that's absolutely the correct things to be praying. No question about it. But if we are going to be praying the scriptures, then we need to employ our imagination as we pray so that we can become actually aware of the spiritual realm around us. Just as we are in the physical realm that is contested with the kingdom of darkness and all of the ugly stuff that we've talked about, we are also have access to the presence of God and the spiritual realm. Again, this may sound mystical to you. To be fair, this idea was developed by St. Uh, Ignatius, who is, uh, who is an early church father, and he uh, popularized this idea of imaginative prayer. But he's totally onto something because the scripture is filled with this kind of praying. In fact, you might even argue this is the primary way that you see people praying in the Bible. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me to down to the green pastures. The Lord is my strong tower. The Lord covers me in the shadow of his wings. I could keep going on literally for days. The Bible is filled with these images. Also in the Jewish temple, there were dozens if not hundreds of images that were symbolic of these same kinds of spiritual realities. For example, there's gold everywhere. That's symbolic. There was also a menorah with lamps, which was hugely symbolic to the Holy Spirit. There was also cherubim, these angel figures. There was also showbread, like literally fresh baked bread. And then there was incense that gave off an aroma, and that all was symbolic. Wood that represented the Garden of Eden, and then the ark that represented the throne of God. All of these things were in the temple. Actual items or relics or icons that were meant to curate or posture uh, imagination. So the purpose of all of that was to divinely curate space, like an actual physical location, a room, to engage all of the senses in prayer with the reality of God. 
So when you came into the temple, which you wouldn't have done very often if you lived in the first century, it would stir up or it would provoke your faith in the direction of Yahweh. It would stir up your faith in the direction of God. It would stir up your imagination to the spiritual realm. Are you with me? Are you with me? Yeah, it stirs up your imagination. So here's one example of how imaginative prayer might actually look like in your lived experience. It might look like this. You're alone in the presence of God. It's just you and, and, and him. Which, by the way, normally you would do this um, by yourself or with someone, like one other person. We're doing it in kind of a funky way with all of us here in the room. Um, but I need to illustrate this for you. So just imagine for a moment you're in the presence of God. And as you are, as you're waiting, those feelings that you've been suppressing all along come rushing to the surface. And you're feeling them intensely. And your temptation is to pick up your phone or do something else that will make you busy so that you don't have to think about it anymore. But you resist that temptation, and instead you name the thing that you're feeling. I feel anxiety. I know this is a current struggle for a lot of people, so I'm going to use it. I feel anxiety. And then as soon as you say that, you may notice or imagine that Jesus said, be anxious for nothing. And time and again, you've prayed and prayed and prayed that God would help you with your anxiety. And so now, the way that you're experiencing that is a little bit cynical. You're cynical about it. And that's a very common thing in our culture, especially in the Northwest. We're very cynical people. And so you notice the cynicism too, and you confess your cynicism, and you just keep praying. And then as you wait, and as you sit there a little bit longer, you begin to discern that at the center, the root of your cynicism is unbelief. It's unbelief. So you might be sort of in your imagination, you might be writing Jesus off as being idealistic. Okay, great. Maybe this works for some people. Andrew seems hyped. Jesus knew how to pray or whatever. It's not my lived experience. We're cynical. We're un- we experience unbelief. So then you name that too. You name your unbelief. God, I believe that your word is true, but I have a lot of struggle believing all of you or all of it. Would you please help my unbelief? And then what would happen next in your imaginative prayer practice is that you would begin to go with the image and imagine in your mind Hebrews chapter 4, 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. And you just go with that picture. Again, like the fridge. You go with that picture and you imagine the throne of God. The throne of God is radiant and it's filled with light. And there's a lot of comfort and peace there. It's majestic. And there's angels who are encircling the throne and they're shouting and singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and the whole earth is filled with his glory. And then on the right hand of the throne of God is Jesus. And you begin to picture and imagine him there. And he's still marked with the scars in his hands and his feet of the cross. But notice that he's not fighting and working and filled with angst. But he's actually seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father. Symbolizing that the work is finished. And the Holy Spirit is there too. And he is there encircling the throne. And he's interceding for us. With the things that we don't even know how to say, the things that the English language won't actually articulate because it's so limited and imperfect. 
But there is the Holy Spirit, and he's interceding for you, and he's expressing you to the Father. And then as Isaiah says, you picture that that heaven is God's throne and the earth is his footstool. And you literally imagine that in your mind's eye. And as you do that, it begins to settle into you what that, re, what that actually represents. Which is that for everything in your life that you can't control, that you don't like, and that is really hard for you right now, that God is still somehow sovereign or over all of it. He is... Uh, He has authority over all of it. So every situation, every mental illness, every human heart will one day bow to this rule of Jesus and one day all will be as it should be. And again, that's the next image that pops into your mind and you just lean into that one as well. That at the end of the scriptures, the end of the biblical narrative, there is the throne of God and the river of life is flowing out from uh, from, from the throne of God. And all of this begins to take shape and life to you. And as you see the river of life flowing out of the throne room, you see areas that used to be dry and arid and lifeless popping with real life again. And everything is flourishing. And then you just imagine yourself going towards him, approaching the throne. From the outside, you make yourself into the throne room. And then you inch your way closer and closer to the Lord. And as you do in the language of Colossians 3, you lift up your eyes to him and you lock eyes with him and you gaze upon his face in the language of the Bible. I'm giving you like at least 30 images or pictures. They're all biblical and they are meant to draw us into the presence in the way that I'm describing. And as you approach the throne, you realize that it's not a throne of judgment. Sure, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. But because of Jesus, you, all of your sin has been removed from you and you are qualified to be there. You belong there and this is even where you find your center and your home. It's a throne of grace. And then you realize that God is there to want to richly bless you. Like in the language of Ephesians chapter 2, it says where... In heaven, where God's throne is, there is an inexhaustible treasury of God's grace, like a Fort Knox-style storage house of God's grace, his gifts, that he intends to, in, the, in, in Ephesians 2, lavish on his people. And so this is what you are picturing. This is what you are imaging. This is what you are noticing as you approach God and his throne. You notice that you belong. Again, you're a child. You're a child of the king and you're safe with him. I have access to the throne room of God. You even have an inheritance there in the throne room of God, in the kingdom of God, because the king loves you and he, you're, you're his person. And again, when you wonder, is this for real and can I really hope in this, you glance back at Jesus at the right hand of the Father and you observe the nail marks in his hands and his feet. And as you do this, you begin to see and experience gratitude and and love just begin to rise up in your spirit. And then as you do this, you begin to, to really be marked by the reality what Jesus said. As you're at his throne, Jesus, you remember Jesus said that you can ask for anything in my name and my Father will give it to you. If, I, if it were me saying that, you should probably discredit it. 
But it's Jesus is the one who made that promise. And he's the one whose throne room, he said, you can approach boldly with confidence because it's the throne of grace. And now you're there. You're there. You're there in his presence. And as you are, you begin to realize that while that seemed like an outlandish promise that you would never take him up on, now that you're here in his presence and before his throne, you're like, wait a second. Anything I ask in his name, you'll give it to me. And now your faith is being stirred a little bit more and your imagination is tuned in towards this new reality of the spiritual realm and you meditate on that final line so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And this is how now you are able to release to the Lord, release to the Lord your anxieties or the burdens that you came in carrying, the things that have been like gnawing at you and plaguing you for months and years and the lies that people spoke over you and the fears that you have about abandonment and the fact that you can't picture a possible hopeful future for yourself and you carry all of those burdens and as you're in the presence of God, you realize them for what they are, a lie that's not true and you actually have the power in Jesus' name And he's inviting you to do it through his countenance of mercy and grace to let those things down at his feet. So the heavy things that you're carrying, you do not have to carry anymore. And you literally feel the weight coming off of your shoulders as you imagine him in prayer. You're releasing your anxiety. It's like dropping a heavy rock that you can no longer carry at his feet. And like Elijah, you name every side of it. It's natural for these things to be intense. I feel alone. I feel unwanted. I feel fear failure. I fear what other people think. I have doubts about all kinds of things and all this stuff. Of course, yes, absolutely. And as you persist in the presence of God and you don't jump out of that moment, you proceed through that moment of, of, of momentary fear and that momentary sense of insecurity and you realize that it's okay, that you're safe, that you can actually just name these fears, you can release these fears and move on. And as you feel the weight coming off of your hands and off of your body, your hands are now open and you can receive the store from the storehouses of God's grace. You can actually receive a gift from him now. And he said he wants to give you mercy and grace. You want it? You want it? You can have it. You can have it. You can, if you want it, you can have it. He's saying, I'll give it to you. And then you just wait and you wait in his presence. And sometimes the waiting is longer than you'd like. And that's just kind of how it goes. But it's developing the muscle of trust. See, trust in the Father is like a muscle, and waiting on the Lord is like the strength training for that muscle. So waiting on the Lord is what grows your muscle group to actually trust in the Lord. So if your trust in the Lord is on the floor, this is probably why. You need this in your life. And slowly but surely, you receive from the Father what you need for the moment, or maybe the day, but probably never more than that, Because God wants to keep you close to him. So he's giving you what you need for right now, but not not beyond it. And then he heals, and then he offers his peace. And again, it's gradual. It's not like the flipping of a switch, but it happens. He comforts. He he brings courage. And it's at the throne. You don't receive what you think that you want or what you think that you need, or God basically uh, uh, endorses your life plan. At the throne room of God, you receive what the Father actually knows what you truly, truly need. And actually, God endorsing your life plan is less interesting to you now than actually just receiving from the Father everything that he has from you. 
Okay, that is just one example of how imaginative prayer could look like in your experience. It could. And it's way better than a blank computer screen that we often like block out of our field of view. and We just start thinking prayers in our brains. I've seen this happen with my kids. My kids have a much better imagination than I do. They're kids, so they tend to be that way. I remember one time I told Isabel that when Jesus returns, he's coming down on a white horse. And a few days later, she goes, okay, so how about now? And she looks up in the sky and says, Jesus, are you coming down? Get on your horse and come down. And it's this really beautiful thing. Her, her imagination is far more accessible to her than it is to me. And this is why kids often have the most like imaginative-filled and faith-filled prayers. There you go. Could have been strange. Could have been mystical. Could have been weird to you. Maybe you think Ignatius is crazy. Maybe you think I'm even crazier for reappropriating his teaching like 1,200 years later. Whatever. It's okay. I think this is deeply, deeply biblical. Please don't knock it until you try it. The Apostle Paul writes, and this will be how we end, that we look at the things that are unseen not at the things which are seen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I think he's in part talking about imaginative prayer. I think that's what he's talking about. Practically calling to mind and visualizing the concrete spiritual reality that's all around us that you cannot see in your field of vision But when you take God at his word, you have eyes to see and ears to hear the things that he's actually doing in our midst. And Paul is utterly convinced, and you can tell even in his day, that he had a different sort of kingly and kingdom perspective that many others struggled to find. And that was this deep sense that after this life of suffering was waiting for him an eternal weight of glory that he describes as being far outweighing anything else that they might encounter in this life. And he's able to say this because he's anchoring his hope in the unseen spiritual realities that are more real than what we experience here in the the, uh, physical world. Again, I would just say, it's time for you to step in and it's time for you to try prayer. Please don't just like like fall into the trap of all the same boring forms of prayer that never got you excited about God in the first place. Those things just represent false images of God. But the possibility that is in front of each of us that you and I can actually imagine and experience in our real lives the hope of the new creation and the hope of the kingdom of God. So will you please stand with me and let's pray. So let's do another little visualizing practice right now. Revelation chapter 3 says that he meaning Jesus, knocks on the door of your heart. 
If anyone hears his voice and opens that door, he will come in and eat with you and you with him. This is a picture of God making his home with us. And so what I want you to do is, if you want to, please don't enter into this if you feel like you're being manipulated by me or anyone else in the room, because that's certainly not our heart. But if you're saying you're ready and you want to encounter God in the ways that I'm describing, I want you to picture the door. You're on the other side of God's invitation. And you hear the, the light rattling on that door. And now what I want you to do, again, if you're ready, is to just reach for the handle and pop it open and just crack it for him. as you do, I want you to notice how the Lord takes your response to his invitation and he comes in to be with you. And now I just encourage you to receive his comforting love and his peace. something happening with some of you here because you've been willing to venture into an area where you're not familiar but you sense God's leading there's an there's a real reward that's coming at the end of the line and the reward is him so as he comes in just tell him that you're glad to see him you're glad to be with him and now we respond through worship, which is another form of prayer. So let's pray to him through our singing. And let's also go to the tables of communion so that we can remember the sacrifice that Jesus made.